0: women and widows. And when I came back, the secretary wrote why the, the purpose of the trip, to provide notoriety to the University of Florida. And it was a correct use of the word notoriety. <laughs> but thank you for coming here. Thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure to get back. A pleasure to have Dr. Howard Dresnick today with us to give a talk. It was arranged in the very last minute, and I really appreciate this great turnout. It's just marvelous. Um, Dr. Resnick got his PhD. He has many, many avatars himself. (laughs) 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 In one of his avatars, the academic avatars, he received his PhD in Sanskrit and Indian studies under no less than Michael Witzel. Right in Harvard University. We had the privilege of having Dr. Resnick teach here at the University of Florida um, for a whole year, a year and a half back. Right. Right, and, uh, and just about a year back, right? And his ratings, his student evaluations just went to the roof at that point. People liked the way in which he has the blend of both academia and education, along with a form of storytelling, if you will, or narration in the classical Indian way, in which, such that when you teach something, it doesn't seem like teaching at all. It seems like you're being entertained to see you your understanding. you enjoy it, and oh, by the way, I learned so much. And that's a unique gift. So, we were so happy that he was passing through and in the middle of a very busy schedule, he was able to be here to give this talk. Unfortunately for me, it was a clash of dharma, so to speak, because uh, my husband, who's running a conference, had chosen today to entertain 28 people, and I have 28 people <coughs> waiting for me at dinner, already assembled, and I came here to introduce Dr. Resnick, but I haven't. Go back fulfill that part of my dharma right now. and I really apologize for... No, no, for we're, we're very
1: grateful you
0: the job Dr. Resnick has talked in many places, both in the West Coast and here, but also around the world, and brings together a wonderful combination of East and West. It's globalization, but then That form of globalization happened with texts, with narration, with stories, with philosophies around the world, and it's been happening for two millennia now, longer. And we think it happened yesterday. But he embodies such a notion of globalization, so classical dichotomies like insider, outsider, westerner, easterner, these are lost when he gives a talk. And today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Resnick talk about avatars, Atheists, and Anarchy. I didn't choose it. <laughs> I can't wait to get to B. This <laughs> is still A.
2: <laughs>
0: Avatar. <laughs> anarchy. Discovering religion in India. Tell me a term there that is not controversial. Religion. And in India, right? And our cars, is. So, thank you so much for being here. And once again, my apologies. No, no, I do. apologize for not being. No, it's, it was very kind. I hope to, to watch the whole show slowly in slow motion. <laughs> no thank <problem>. you. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. Once, thank you
3: chosen for me by a very dear associate. and uh, <clears throat> So, avatars, atheists, and anarchy, right?
2: <laughs>
3: um, okay, first, some very simple stuff about the word avatar. I'll just spend... I'm just defining words and not have to uh, entertain them. So in, in Sanskrit, uh, ava means down, downward, and uh, tara means crossing. So so the word avatara literally in Sanskrit means a down crosser or someone who crosses down. And uh, pervading. Uh, pervading, you could say, sacred Indian traditions, is the notion of different levels of consciousness. Oh, thank you. A special order. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, practically any spiritual tradition or religious tradition that is exhorting exhorting people or trying to persuade people that where you are now is not okay, you've got to where you've got to go to this other place. Right? Because come on. Oh sorry, that's my interpretation. I just got to... <laughs> <laughs> so um So the very notion is that you have to practice something, you have to do something or accept something or believe something because wherever you are, point A, you've got to get to point B. And so it's interesting to see the way different traditions define point A and point B. For example, uh, some traditions would characterize where you are now and where you need to go in entirely moral terms like you are now evil. You need to go to... Uh, the good, or uh, you are polluted, you have to be purified. What's it, now, in, in the Vedic conception, uh, and, and to some extent, all of this different language is used, because uh, I mean, even in the sense of training a child, I mean, I mean let's say you have a, a beautiful little child that has the habit of bashing his or her playmates over the head with an iron rod, and, and so you have to you have to bring this child to the stage of, let's say, superior behavior. So there, are, there are moral issues. There is a sense in which, there is a sense in which, an enlightened state of consciousness or coming to spiritual awareness is associated with superior behavior, behavior which is morally superior. And, um, but also in, in the Vedic system or, let's say, especially in the Bhagavad system, the Vaishnav system, there's tremendous emphasis on knowledge. On knowledge. In the Bhagavad Gita, in chapter 4, the last paragraph, you could say, of that chapter, Krishna talks a lot about the power of knowledge. He says, for example, that there's nothing as purifying in this world as knowledge. And uh, it's interesting because there was a tension, for example, in the early Christian community. I, I won't go into this. Between the early Christian community and, and certain Gnostics. And of course, the Greek word gnosis is just Sanskrit jnana. And, and this emphasis on knowledge. But uh, in any case, uh, there's this emphasis on different levels of consciousness. And the the problem, the problem in this Bhagavad or Vaishnava, or Vedic conception, is not so much conceived of as a devil. It's not that there's some Completely evil agent that is trying to, you know, mess people up. The problem is illusion. The problem is ignorance. The problem is not understanding. And so, in this, and that's why, for example, out of the same culture, the same great Vedic culture, you have this whole yoga system. And not only yoga, as we understand, it, I mean, sort of meditation, but this tremendous system of exploring consciousness, purifying consciousness, reaching higher states of consciousness. And that that there are many things, the most important things of life, in life, can only be understood in higher states of consciousness. So that, for example, things that we consider very important, like, let's say, selfless love, or some form of spiritual enlightenment, bless you, or um, compassion, knowledge, uh, deep understanding, and so on. Let's say in the life of a slug, I, I mean the slug that takes about 45 minutes to get across your sidewalk, it's, um, I mean, we can see the different Things that we value very much, a higher state of, 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 of ethics and, or, or a higher state of consciousness, these things are generally not available in lower states of consciousness. So the concept of avatar, because you have these different levels of existence The idea is that people in higher states of consciousness and and people in higher states of consciousness are given the prerogative or the privilege of living in higher realms because different realms correspond to different levels of consciousness. And so when people in a higher state of consciousness from a higher realm come down here to try to help us, uh, it's called the avatar, the one who crosses down. And you have this exact same concept which was taken up very enthusiastically in Mahayana Buddhism, in the form of the Bodhisattva, and uh, I mean, in a sense, in, in the in the Jesus narrative, Jesus is conceived of a, as an avatar, someone who comes from a higher realm, comes down. Interestingly, also in India, the uh, probably the most common word for a holy place or a place of pilgrimage, from the same root as Tara, is uh, verbal root is the word Tirtha. And so the idea is that a, an avatar crosses down into this material realm, does things in this world, lives a life in this world, or performs certain events. Sometimes they're just like very brief appearances in, in certain circumstances. But somehow comes this world, and so the places associated with the activities of the avatar become tirthas. The avatar crosses down and somehow imbues or infuses that place with sacrality, or or with with that somehow that spiritual energy, and so if you go to that place, you can cross back up. And in a sense, the avatar coming down from a higher realm opens up a channel, and if you access, if you go to those places, you can access that channel and go back up to the higher realm from which the avatar came. So that's that's the meaning of the word tirtha, actually, and. Um, we also find this in Plato, the idea that someone comes out of the cave, sees the light, and then compassionately, sort of like the platonic bodhisattva, you know, goes back into the cave and tries to help other people to come to the light. So, so that's the general thing of avatar. And ultimately, uh, of all the higher states of consciousness, the highest consciousness is that of God the highest consciousness is that of God because in that case we have omniscience full omniscience so uh, so the idea is that God or the absolute truth and of course what God is is a whole topic but the idea is that God can come down to this world as the avatar, God is the primary avatar but other people can also serve as avatars and of course some of you know all these things but uh, I'll say it anyway because that way I don't have to think of something else to say. The word shakti, of course, means power or energy. You've probably seen this word shakti. And uh, in in Sanskrit, the the word avesh, which means, uh, I mean, we have similar words in English, like the vesh, we have vest. Not the thing you wear over your chest, but as in invest, and so on the sense of, you know, getting into something. And uh, anyway, there's other... Oh my God, you shouldn't have done that. So, so a Shakti Avesh avatar means an avatar in which uh, God's power has been invested in someone else. I mean, we simply call it the power of agency. You know, what do they say when you, when you give someone a power of attorney, for example? It means you have a certain authority you have a certain authority, you have a certain legal power, and you invest that power in some other individual. It's a very simple concept. So, in that sense, uh, the idea is that God can give power attorney to an individual soul, and that person then becomes an avatar. That person then becomes an avatar, and with that special power, that special energy, can, in a sense, do God's work in the world. So, Although the word, obviously the word avatar is a Sanskrit word which was used especially within a South Asian context and especially in regards to Vishnu or Krishna. Uh, But the concept is quite common the concept of someone coming from a higher realm. Even say in Islam, the idea that God somehow through the angel Gabriel spoke the Quran to Muhammad. So in that sense, Gabriel acted practically as a type of avatar in the sense of power of attorney from God, and then the Quran. You know, it was manifested and so on. So this notion this notion that there is a higher realm and that somehow uh, agents or persons from that higher realm can uh, do things down in this lower realm and, and, and create channels through which, I mean think of what a scripture is from the Islamic point of view uh, because the Quran is somehow coming from a higher realm, therefore it's a channel through which one can go up so that's that, that's the idea of the avatar coming down into the process of coming down, opening a channel through which people can then cross back up, and, and that's the basic idea. That's the basic which you find really throughout spiritual traditions around the world, and I, I think in a sense it was it was very strongly developed in India, very in a very sophisticated theology of avatar. Now I mentioned that uh, I didn't mention I mentioned to a, in a private individual that there are also sort of anti-avatars, right? I mean, the, the, the word is not used, which in Sanskrit would be something like prati-avatar, but that word is not actually used. But in the Mahabharata, for example, in, in, in the first book, the Adi Parva of the Mahabharata, uh, there is a section called the uh, angst parva, the section which describes the descent, the avatarana, which is just a bit, another cognate word, avatarana, the descent of different anshas or different individuals who represented the power of or the agency of different powerful beings, some of them good, some of them evil, suras and asuras. So, so in that sense, uh, although it's not used this way generally theologically, but still the language is there in the ancient texts that let's say someone could represent uh, the force of evil in the world. Now, there's again, there's not a devil, there's not a Lucifer. But there is a notion that within the universe there are uh, different societies within the universe and that Earth is not... There's an interesting sense in which for all the crowing that you see in, let's say, science about that they never tire of reminding us how people, before they got really scientific, used to think really stupid things like the geo Centric conception of life, and they never tire of telling us this: how they saved us from this obscurantism of, of geocentrism. But there's a sense in which, even the let, let, let's say the born again empiricists, are are also kind of are also kind of geocentric. They're looking for life, but it's very interesting because. It's like when you're a kid and you have a birthday party they send out your invitations and what if someone says no? So in a sense, all these space explorations, like looking for life in other places or the conditions that would support life, it's like, you know, sending out an invitation to the little party we're having calling, you know, the little party we have here called Destroy the Earth. And, I mean, what if people in other worlds just don't accept the invitations, don't show up for the party? So so there's, there, there, there's something kind of naive and, and anthropocentric and geocentric about thinking that if there's any superior life out there, how could they say no? <laughs> so the picture we get, the picture we get in, in this literature, Sanskrit literature, is... In a sense, one of a what I call a cosmic village. We have the notion of a global village on Earth, but the, all this epic literature and different, like the, the Itihasa Purana literature, it really uh, describes a cosmic village. There is, and by village, of course, it's a sociological term, meaning uh, a, a group of people at a certain level of intimacy that know each other, and, you know, community. A village is, you know, the, the term village is used because the village is a particular unit of human aggregation in which it's small and the people really know each other. There's intimacy and people kind of influence each other and homogenize each other sort of because of that personal contact. That's why people who are like really different in some way or another, they, you know, they kind of move out of their little towns and go to big cities where they can kind of get away and be themselves. And so uh, the idea, there's really sort of a cosmic village. A cosmic village. And um, And there's life all over the universe and there's many different kinds of technology. It's not all the kind of earth technology we have. It's a much bigger picture of the universe. It's much more cosmopolitan. It's much more cosmopolitan in the sense that it's not anthropocentric and geocentric because there are many ways in which even modern science is still extremely geocentric and anthropocentric in the assumptions they make about the uniformity of conditions throughout the universe, which is really... An extremely naive assumption. Anyway, uh, moving right along, there there are other people to bash.
2: Um, <laughs>
3: right? We are generous in our aggression. So. There's also the point of atheism. The, the, the next two topics picked by a uh, dear associate for reasons which known only to Vishnu and herself. The other two terms were um, atheism and uh, anarchy, which of course are both negative terms grammatically because atheism, of course, as we know, is just not theism. And... Uh, you have to put the N in anarchy because the following word starts with a vowel, and so otherwise, whoops, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Can I take my notes. <laughs> um, right I know, I know. It's just a Y, right? Because if you say anarchy, it just, so they say put an N. Same thing they do in Sanskrit, by the way. Anagasa. It's very interesting because uh, Sanskrit. English is an Indo-European language and in Sanskrit you put the a uh before a word to say not like a uh, Vaishnava and you add the a-n so if, if the word starts with a vowel like anagasa one who is not central so uh, this a and a-n as the primitive particle uh, is also f- grammarians have very eccentric words so this is uh, is also found in English RK of course is very interesting uh of course, this is all, in a sense, related to Sanskrit. Uh, the Greek, what is it, deus? And uh, which is just sans- and, and Latin, deus, and Sanskrit, deva. And the, um, the, this is, of course, arche. The Greek word arche, which means a governing principle, a ruling or governing principle, a ruler or governor. Just like monarchy. Mono means one. So monarchy, monarchy means one ruler. And oligarchy means a group of rulers and and anarchy means no ruler, no governing principle. So, in a sense, well, not in a sense, I mean, just period. These two words are denials. These are denials. These two words both say that something is not the case. That something is not the case. That, That God is not the case or a governing principle is not the case. And uh, what do we do with the atheism? Because I mean, I, I I don't want to get into that old game where you know proofs for the existence of God, proofs that there is no God, and because it's it's just been done so much, it's really like a rerun at this point. And you know, it's it's sort of like I remember when I was a kid. You know, I, I kid. I grew up in LA, and they would have the local TV stations that were very low budget. And all they could afford was reruns, and they played the same reruns over and over again. So like that one, Invaders from Mars, and I saw about 7,392 times. <laughs> anyway, so this whole issue of... How's your help? Good. So this whole issue of um, you know, proving there's a God and not proving there's a God, it, it assumes certain things. I mean, if something is provable... If something is provable, that entails other things being the case about that object. And so, um, or I should say provable on demand. Most people, most human beings that have at one time or another, one place or another, lived on this planet, most human beings have, have believed that there is some type of divine existence above the human. And uh, you could say it doesn't prove anything. It just could be one of the greatest examples of uh, sustainable mass hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> and so I bring that up not to say that, not to say that. Um, it is a final proof of something. But there is a distinction actually made by a 20th century philosopher. Uh, was it Levinas? I can't remember. But it was. Um, anyway, a 20th century European philosopher, I forgot, I forgot his name, who made a distinction between proving to yourself and proving to others. And actually, there are things in life that you can prove to yourself, but you may not be able to prove to others for various reasons. We can think of different examples of that. And uh, the fact that most human beings that ever lived, the overwhelming majority of human beings that ever lived, did in fact believe in some type of divine existence above the human uh, shows that most people are able to prove it to themselves. And so therefore the real question, the real issue here is not just can it be proved because again... Uh, the majority of people have more or less been satisfied that it was demonstrated to them. The real question is, under what conditions can we prove it to other people, especially, let's say, someone who is skeptical? And so we're not really talking about the broader category of proving God. We're really talking about a much narrower epistemological category or a philosophical category of proving something to someone who is skeptical about that proposition. And so it's really that sub or sub-subset of proving that we're talking about, and we should clarify that. So, um, so so maybe we can just talk, can we talk about this? Is this like something to get paid (laughs) right? So, I'd like to talk a little bit philosophically about proving about just like the notion of proof because it's it's something people don't think about very much. We live in almost, America at the present time is almost an anti-philosophical culture. I mean, it's obviously not a philosophical culture and it borders on being anti-philosophical. So, by the way, uh, the Sanskrit word for proof, Sanskrit, the most common (laughs) <laughs> the most common Sanskrit word for proof is pramana uh, yeah, yeah. I'm having a crisis right now ok so that's that's pramana now now the word pramana just so you see like how different people articulate the notion of proof so the, uh, the Sanskrit root ma means to measure and so matra means is is just, you know, we have it in English metric I mean you don't have to be what do they say, I would say a rocket scientist I wonder if it's really that difficult to become a rocket scientist anyway (laughs) I suspect it's actually not that hard so matra and metric or the English word measure and so on and so forth so these are cognate words so mana means measuring and pra sort of like directly, directly measuring. And in the sense of measuring as proof, we have in English for example, there's a very uh, or in the West, there, there's a very famous statement by Protagoras the uh, Greek sophist who sometimes would you know, have little dust-ups up, dust with Socrates. And uh, Protagoras said, you know, man is the measure of all things, of things that are, that, that they are things that are not that they are not. So, you know, man is the measure of all things. So the idea of measuring, proving, is there in Sanskrit. And then there's another key concept, uh, another word that can be added, which is uh, a a term, by the way, used by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, as you see in the text, uh, Chaitanya Charitamrita. He uses this term, swataha, pramana. And swa is just Spanish su, as in mi casa is su casa, I mean, su just means yours or, or, or one's own. It's just a general possessive. And, uh, you know, I mean, we have in everything like in, in Greek and Latin and sua. I mean, I mean not Greek, but Latin. So it's, it's just, I mean, that's Sanskrit, sua, which is just the Latin sua. And the V is, anyway, we'll go into the phonetics of it. Same word. So, taha is just an ablative particle. So what this means, swa taha, is simply that from itself, from itself, evidence from itself, or by itself. And so this is the Sanskrit term for self-evident. This is the this is Sanskrit term for self-evident. And um, this is the term that Lord Chaitanya used to start a boma, which said the Vedas are pramana. They're, they're self-evident. Now, uh, there is a famous philosopher who talked a lot about the notion of self-evidence, And that is, of course, Aristotle. Aristotle is sort of the father of modern logic, Western logic. And uh, Aristotle makes the point that um, when you try to prove something, we're talking about proving, when you try to prove something, uh, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. Like, let's say I claim I was in Gainesville yesterday. Prove it. Okay, here's someone that will testify on my behalf. How can I trust him? Well, here are people that can testify to that person's character. Well, how can I trust those people? And, and you, so you, you can always be pushed back. Like, here's the evidence. Like, A is B is the evidence for A, but what's the evidence for B? Well, C is the evidence for B, and D is the evidence for C, etc. So... Um, In Western epistemology, because you know epistemology, how do you know you know? How do you know you know you know? Uh, Etc. So the Greek word episteme, knowledge. So um, Aristotle made this point. Aristotle made the point that when you're trying to prove something, you can be pushed back one step. We'll prove that, and then prove that. And so Aristotle said, and and this is the same thing that actually philosophers to this day say, because it's true. That um, in order to stop this regress of proofs, one of the most common ways to stop this is it's sometimes referred to as foundationalism in Western epistemology. It's the idea that you have to take a stand. Aristotle talks about an army that's being pushed back by the opposing army. And it keeps it, it's pushed back farther and pushed back farther. At a certain point, the only hope of that army is to take a stand. It has to take a stand somewhere. Otherwise, it is simply going to be utterly defeated, and routed. So Aristotle says the way you take your stand is that you have to insist, or argue, or believe, or somehow make the you know, persuade reasonable people that there is a self-evident basis for what you're saying that somehow there's a point which is self-evident. It proves itself, and therefore you don't have to bring in anything extrinsic to it to prove it. So the regress stops. The regress stops there because something proves itself, and that's the end of it. And so if you don't get that self-evident point, you're just not in the ballgame. You just missed it. So to give a very good example of a self-evident starting point, uh, take empirical science. All of empirical science is more or less based on the belief, based on the belief that there's actually a, a material world. After all, for all, I mean, what if it was the case that you were actually the only living thing? Well, not maybe the only living thing and, and you're just like imagining everything else. You're imagining other people, you're imagining a world, you're just like a little brain in a bottle somewhere and you're just dreaming that there's a, whole, there's a world. It's a pretty horrific thing, and don't take this too seriously because it could lead to uh, the need for medication. But it does, it does. So, so basically scientists that study the world say, look, there's a real world out there. And I've made this point many times, but I'll go over it again. Uh, if someone says, look, this is a real bottle of water, this, this is a real bottle of water and therefore there's a real world that's circular reasoning because only if there's a real world is this a real bottle of water so circular reasoning means if I can diagram it I hope I can diagram it I've never done this before i am just gonna over um, I'll put it up here and then I'll start erasing things um, let, let's say I'm trying to prove something here real world this is what I'm trying to prove that there's a real world. I'm trying to prove that. So it's not proved yet. And let's say someone disputes it. Someone says, no, there's not a real world out there. It's all in our heads. So I'm trying to prove this. And so I give as my premise, this is my conclusion, that there is a real world. And I give as my premise, evidence that there's a real world is, here's something which is real. Let's say, real bottle. And that's my premise. But of course only if there's a real world, is this a real bottle. If we are just imagining the world, this is just one detail of the dream. And so therefore, in order to prove this, in a sense I'm trying to prove something by giving itself so So it's it's just going around in circles. It's just going around in circles because I'm giving the, the very thing I'm trying to prove, I'm giving as evidence of what I'm trying to prove. So I'm just going around, this is called begging the question or circular reasoning. And so you can't do empirical science, or for that matter, you know, function sanely in the world, unless you just assume that, and if you think about it, if if you look within yourself and say, why do I believe there's a real world out there? For example, let's say you go to a movie, and you see a movie about a real world, and somehow or other, even though you get into the movie and you suspend your disbelief, you suspend your disbelief, you know that it's just a movie. Even though let's say the, let's say the visual technology is so advanced that it really looks just like like an Avatar movie. It was, um, it was uh, you know there were there were times of the 3D thing. I like 3D. It's um, and not even just the big dramatic scenes of super luscious Pandora, but just even like in scenes where like people were in a room talking to each other, it's like they were really there. And so what if technology goes even further, and, and this is very plausible, so that, um, just like, for example, digital music, they now come to the point where they can produce digital music that, that even train musicians. You know, they can't figure out whether in the next room they're real musicians or trained musicians. But at least at this point, we know it's just a movie. What if you have a dream? You have a dream and then you wake up from your dream... And you know that your waking awakened state is more real than your dream. Now, how do you know that? Because when you were dreaming, you thought it was real. I mean, sometimes we have dreams and we think this is a dream. But most of the time we don't. So then when you wake up, you compare those two states of consciousness and you conclude this is more real than the dream state. So, every quote-unquote, normal person, every person that thinks that they are competent to distinguish between dream states and waking states, everyone who thinks they can distinguish between, let's say, a movie and real life, is is claiming to have the power to distinguish different levels of reality. In other words, every normal person claims to have that power. And so, when someone says there's God or there's a soul, they are claiming the same power. They're just claiming that they've explored it further. But they are, in principle, not claiming a power different than what every normal person claims. They're claiming, in a sense, the same power the scientist claims the power to distinguish between different levels of reality. Because a scientist says that, okay, I dreamed this, and then I woke up, and this is more real. Or that, for example, maybe I, I uh, you know, a scientist may say, like, I took a drug, or I, I was drunk, and I, and I saw things that weren't there, but now I know that I'm, now that I'm sober, I know this is more real. So everyone is claiming this power. But if you claim a little more of the power... If you say that I've actually taken the time, due diligence, I've actually taken the time and done the work to develop my consciousness or to investigate God, and therefore this very same power has yielded superior results, the materialists or the atheist will falsely claim that you are claiming a special new power that we don't claim. And so this is actually, I think, a very interesting philosophical point which actually warrants erasing some of these words so I can... The suspense is mounting here. Anyway, Krishna Krishna talks in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 4, I think. About a Vartma. He he, he uses this word Vartma. The word Vartma means path. Mama Vartma, my path. And uh, he says, Mama vartma anu uh, In Sanskrit, anu means to follow, and vartante means to proceed. So he says that everyone follows my path. It's a very interesting statement, which I'm going to explore a little bit philosophically. And vart, by the way, is, is a very common Indo-European stem, which we still have in English, in innumerable words. English, you just, you know, it's the same word, we just, we just spell it like this. And then, and then we add different uh, prefixes like in, sub, per, or re, and so on. But, but, but it's the same root, the same Indo European root. So, anyway, what Krishna is saying here is that um, everyone follows my path. What this means is that every living thing in any state of existence, from the lowest to the highest, from the highest, most enlightened, pure soul, to the—I uh, don't know—you know—to the lowest people in the most miserable conditions that are, you know, have to do public radio fundraising drives. <laughs> <laughs> uh... That would be a. Punishment, isn't it? What if your next life? You're, you know, you're trapped on the planet, you have to hear it 24 7. Public radio fundraising drives on. You'd have to make anyone repent. So, so, anyway, what's significant philosophically about this statement is that Krishna, speaking as God in this context, is claiming that actually there's one continu- there, There's a continuum, that all existence is, is in a sense connected on a single path. And people simply stand at different points along this one path. And by saying this is my path, what Krishna is saying, and of course this is a notion philosophically of an absolute truth as opposed to a mere notion of God. I mean, I mean God, if you take in that sense as a supreme being, here we have not merely a supreme being, but an absolute being, which is a real, it's a, it's a different claim. It's, um, do I have time for this? Just very, very briefly, and I, I won't go into this. It, it gets down to ontology. Uh, the notion that everything that exists, and somehow exists within God, is part of God, so that matter is not evil. Matter is not evil, it's simply a different kind of divine energy. Which obviously is much more promising for environmental consciousness. And uh, so, anyway, I'll get back to the main idea here. The idea is that um, every state of consciousness is a kind of God, is, is a certain level of God consciousness. Now, you could say evil. What about, let's say, a state, of, a state of consciousness of someone whose pleasure it is to torture and kill innocent people? And so, let's say that moral perversion or that uh, depravity uh, is itself, obviously, you could say not directly God-consciousness, but, but, I mean, I mean just, just the sheer awareness itself the sheer awareness that certain things exist, that certain powers exist. It's a very twisted, depraved consciousness. But somehow or other the awareness that, that things exist in the world is an awareness of God. Although, rather than honoring all existing things like other people, their bodies and so on, and their minds and so on and so forth, there's a perverse, you could say wicked attempt to, to, uh, to cause harm to other creatures. So so it, it's, it's, it's a very low amount of God consciousness, but still, the awareness that anything exists at all, the awareness that anything at all existed, exists is a level of God consciousness. Because existence itself ultimately is God. In the sense, I mean, this is, gets into all kinds of sort of sophisticated ontological points I won't go into perhaps at this point. Uh, points at this point, at this time. However, suffice it to say that um, I want to get back to the epistemology. I apologize if this is getting kind of a little technical and European. But I really wanted to focus more on the epistemology. Like like the, the philosophy of knowledge. And the idea that every normal person claims to have the power to distinguish reality from illusion even when the objects are very similar and present themselves to us in, in almost identical ways. And so uh, to claim that there's a greater object to God one last point in this that I want to get to anarchy and that is that um, and this may sound like a trick this may sound like a philosophical trick but I, but I think I'm I think in earnest, there's, it really has some merit as, a, as, a, as an argument. And, and it's not merely a philosophical trick. And that is, I think the greatest defect with atheism, or one of the greatest defects of it, has a few defects. I think one defect, and I'm not going to get into like proofs of the existence of God, because that's already been done. I mean, and, 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 and also I said like, I'll get to the point of like, is the nature of God such that that you would expect God to be something which can be deterministically proven to a skeptic an unwilling skeptic, and I would say that I, I think not because of the very nature of God, but in any case uh, if there is no God, you could never really be sure of that because if there is no God, it means no one is omniscient because i mean if you say this person 's omniscient but isn 't god it 's like really then it gets fuzzy. So so I think the the general atheistic position is that no one is omniscient. If no one is omniscient, that means no one knows everything. And so one of the things that we may not know could be God. (laughs) So what I don't get is how can a person that's not omniscient definitely say there's no God? it seems to me there's something actually illogical about that. On the other hand, if there is a God, we, we can use you know, hypothetical language because we are in a great public university. So if there is a God, if there is a God and if that God has the power to make himself or herself known to other conscious beings, then in fact it would be possible to know definitely that there is a God. In other words, it is, it is internally consistent. If we say that there is a God, whether or not, let's say that's true, whether or not you believe it's true, at least it is logical and consistent to say that if that were the case, then it could be definitely known beyond a doubt. Whereas if there's no God, you could argue, I think, logically, that it could never really be finally known with perfect certitude, because no one knows everything. And therefore, no one could definitely know that. And also, I think that, um, I, I think there's a real sense in which to deny God is to abandon the field of philosophy. Which is, of course, you know, the greatest possible insult in the university to accuse someone of being irrational. But it's, the idea being that to give a simple example, take a very interesting philosophy which is that of Jainism, Jainism in India, which, which arose really almost exactly at the same time of Buddhism, a few years earlier in fact, and with many of the same premises, which, with, with many of the same claims. Uh, we will go into the whole history of it now, but it was, a, it was sort of a cultural revolt against a sort of a Vedic culture which had become an unresponsive monopoly, basically. And this unresponsive monopoly, the caste system, as I explained this morning in a class I gave, uh, the, the two great, in, in a sense, two, two of the great cultural features, not only of Vedic culture, but of all traditional cultures, well, let's say, Vedic culture, especially the notion of the oneness of all souls, the oneness of all things within God, and at the same time, hierarchy. Hierarchy. It's interesting because uh, there's a tendency for let's say religious societies to be very hierarchical which is an interesting phenomenon right there which you could talk about I mean, I mean once you accept the idea that there's someone above everyone and then a particular individual can ascend to, to, to have a privileged relationship with that leader and uh, so, so there, there's this relationship between a hierarchy and Jefferson of course tried to establish the Declaration of Independence, Divine Right, Democracy you know we're in doubt and so on but Anyway, so in Jainism, to get back to the point, uh, they accept the existence of an eternal soul, but not God. So in the Vedanta position, there is an eternal God and an eternal soul. In Buddhism, no eternal soul and no eternal God, although that was remedied by Mahayana Buddhism, which kind of swept that away. But that's something else. And, came, and, and did bring back all kinds of eternal things. But at least talking about the original historical form of Buddhism, no eternal god, no eternal soul. In the middle, you had Jainism, in which you have eternal soul but no but no god. It was actually an atheistic system in which there are eternal souls. So I think Jainism, in a sense, is a good test because it Jainism is and certainly was a culture which placed the highest possible value on ethics, on compassion, to the extent of you know wearing these masks so you don't accidentally breathe in some other living being, although uh, they kind of get around this because the monks, the, uh, the, the, the Tirthankar, the, the, the monks the, who are sort of like the spiritual uh-huh. leaders of the community, you have to eat, when you eat you do destroy all kinds of little organisms, so they kind of came up with this ad hoc rule that as long as they, they don't cook it, it's not their fault, so the householders basically literally, literally have to eat the karma. And because you know the householders, they cook, and there's, they have to commit all that unavoidable violence that comes from cooking. I mean, even preparing food. And, and, and so, anyway, so they place they place the greatest value on ethics, on compassion. They do believe in an eternal soul. They were, in a sense, you could say, spiritually minded because the ultimate goal of their program was to transcend ordinary consciousness and so on. But no God. So how did they abandon the philosophical field? They produced a lot of philosophical literature. By the way, because India India was an extremely, uh, you could say, what's the word? Robust, vigorous, uh, uh, dynamic intellectual environment. because Precisely because they didn't have violent persecutions on the basis of doctrine. And therefore, it's kind of like all the different views survived. They didn't just sort of violently you know, stamp out and murder people with differing, differing views. And therefore, they actually debated these things. And so, as far as where the world comes from, you know, how, it, how it is that we come to be eternal souls, how it is that we come to exist the way we do, how is there a universe? Because the Jains accept the law of karma, as the Buddhists do. And so if you ask the simple question, how does the universe, if there's no God, there's no creator, how is it the case... That there just happens to be a personal moral law in the universe. And not only a personal moral law in the universe, but one that, that perceives and responds to the quality of our behavior at the most subtle level possible. Like let's say you do something. What was your intention? Why did you do that? Like let's, let's say, for example, you you push someone. Why did you push that person? Was it to prevent some greater harm? What were you doing? Were you just angry? What was your consciousness? Even if there was a need to push that person, were you envious of that person? Did you take any pleasure in it? Or, in other words, were you somehow glad you got the opportunity to push someone in the name of the law? (laughs) And so so the idea is the law of karma at, at, at a level of infinite subtlety and nuance reads all that. Now, how could unconsciousness read consciousness? What kind of sensors exist in the universe? Who gets it? You do something, and maybe, let's say, you talk a good talk, and and, and so on and so forth, and yet, no matter what you say you're doing, no matter what you say your intention is, somehow, deep, deep within, perhaps unperceived by you, yourself, because often people don't really grasp their own intentions. People think, no, I did it for the right reasons, but maybe under scrutiny or psychoanalysis or later in life when you're more mature, you look back and think, yeah, I was kind of a jerk. <laughs> and I really was proud, isn't it? I mean, we all had experience that, that, that as you get older and more mature, hopefully, and, and not merely older, That you look back, you look back and you realize that, you know, I was naive about my own motives and intentions, and now I understand myself better. And yet, somehow, even when I didn't understand myself, and who else could know it? Because, you know, one of the first principles of of, of epistemology is that every one of us has privileged access to the feelings and thoughts within ourselves. In other words, what you are really feeling and thinking, in a sense, you can perceive directly. Everyone else can just make a behavioral uh, you know, analysis or deduction or whatever. And only you yourself have direct access to your own feelings and thoughts. And so even you didn't know it. So who is it? What is it? What are the sensors? Where are they? How is it that there's some mechanism, there's some force in the universe that knows you better than you know yourself at the most intimate, subtle, nuanced level, going into infinite degrees of psychological stuff? In other words, your motives, your intentions, what's going on inside of you? And something in the universe is reading that perfectly. And then giving you exactly what you deserve, again, to to the nth degree of subtlety and justice. And not only that, but somehow or other, combining innumerable people, billions of people, on this or other planets, in a way, so that what everybody does to, to everybody else, again, to these fantastic levels of subtlety, all works out together. It's all coordinated. No, because actually, you know, the computers are are, are not even (laughs) close. And they'll never be. So what we're talking about is a fantastic intelligence to coordinate all that. To coordinate all of that and to read the greatest subtleties of consciousness. And there's no God. And here, you know, if the word God kind of, you know, sinks someone's boat, you know, so it doesn't float, if someone doesn't like the word God, never mind the word God, you know, because some people may think, well, it has all this baggage, Judeo-Christian baggage involved, forget the word God. And even intelligent design now, some people think is evil, that term. And so, so anyway, so if if someone has, has all kinds of issues with all this life, think of your own word. But what we're really talking about is an awareness. So where are the sensors? And again, Buddhism accepts karma. Jainism accepts karma. So how does this all come about? And where did the world come from? And how is it that that anything exists at all? So, uh, So simply to be atheist, to deny it, and say that a priori, it could not be the case... That there is an ultimate consciousness which somehow sorts this out. To be a priori predisposed, adamantly, adamantly predisposed against anything like an infinite consciousness. It seems to me like I just feel like saying, dude, what's your problem? <laughs> Science, the whole point is, as the Greeks understood in their kind of their obsession with categories and particulars of categories, is that ultimately um, the the, the reasoning mind wants to find uh, unity and simplicity. For example, imagine let's say you'd seen 73 different horses in your life you didn't have the category horse. You just didn't have it in your head. You just thought those were just 73 completely separate experiences. And you didn't notice well they all have manes and tails and four legs. You just didn't have the category. But when you have the category horse, suddenly you've got a concept which governs every horse in the world. And then you can find that horse is in a larger category. It's mammal. And you got, and, and then mammal, of course, you could say is 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 living thing, and and so it's just the nature of science or reason is we're trying to find the we're trying to find powerful unifying concepts that somehow govern things so that, and of course, anarchy means. Uh, I mean, there's something very unnatural about anarchy. just a word about anarchy, and that is. Uh, to say that human beings can or should live with no form of government whatsoever is to radically separate human beings from nature. Because in fact, when we look at, you know, bee colonies, what are they called? Beehives, Ant colonies, right? Not bee colonies and ant hives. So anyway, if you look at all the different species of life, there's governance there's structure there's a sociology there and so anarchy for one thing is just to is to radically separate human beings from nature and of course we know it's not true because people are so inclined to follow the leader even little kids do it and not because their mother says you know if you don't play follow the leader on the way home from school you're not going to eat tonight <laughs> it's just kids just naturally play follow the leader and so uh, the human human beings are so inclined to organize themselves like for example let's say there's some crisis immediately okay uh, you know you do this you do that that in order to sustain anarchy you would have to have a very elaborate <coughs> political force <laughs> to stop people you'd have to organize very elaborately to stop people from organizing <laughs> on the other hand one last word in favor of anarchy And that is, you know, what about freedom? Perhaps the idea of, uh, you know, the libertarian's idea that freedom, if freedom is is the great value, then the idea of, of removing from ourselves any types of restrictions, rules, people governing us, let me be free. I want to just do what I want. That's actually possible. In a sense, that's actually the state of the soul. Anarchy is actually, in a sense, the condition of the spiritual world. Because when... Living beings are completely responsible, and ethical, and good, and virtuous. There's nothing to govern. There's nothing to govern. So that looks say like there's some little town where everybody is like real nice. Hi, hi. How are you? Fine. How are you? And you know, no one ever steals. No one ever steals. No one ever lies. Everyone's real nice. What would you govern? You would just sort of agree yeah, this is the way it should be and you don't need a lot of police cars and you don't need a lot of, you know, barbed wire. I mean, if every if, if no one's going to steal from you, why would you put up barbed wire? So in a, in a world in which no one abuses anyone, no one exploits anyone, and everyone loves everyone, what would you govern? There's nothing to govern. It, it's like it's like for example, and let's say two friends, two people that love each other. Uh, when a relationship becomes political, it's in trouble. And that's why nowadays there's, there's, this, you know, there's this obsession with politicizing everything in life. Like, if you study any culture, any relationship, it's really about power, domination, subjugation. Everything is political. Nothing is not political. Everything is about power. When in fact, I mean, some things are like that. But I was fortunate, I think, to, I mean, I think I have some real friends. It's not about power and politics, it's just about friendship. And so if, if we want anarchy, uh, the way to achieve it is by uh, achieving perfect virtue. And among people who are perfectly virtue, virtuous, there's no need for governance. So if anything ties all this I mean, there's more to say, but it's getting late and... Uh, So 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 proof. Maybe one last thing. What time is it?
0: Four to
3: nine. Oh my god, <laughs> OT. Over time. I'll try to wrap this up. The point about proof, and that is if something is if something is completely deterministic. In other words, let's say for example that this is not a weightless environment right here right now, this this room is not part of a NASA training center. <laughs> You know, it's just a room at the University of Florida. And so if I drop this, it falls, because the law of gravity is operating normally here. The law of gravity is operating normally, and let's say, physiologically, I am good enough physiologically, healthy enough, functional enough, that I can see what's really happening. I can see this is a bottle, I can see it moving through space, and so on and so forth. So therefore, and the bottle, by the way, it's like the bottle's not going to say, let go of me, you jerk. So because a bottle is a physical object, it really can't, like, it just falls. As far as we know, plastic bottles are not conscious, even though they do seem to have almost a conscious desire to migrate to the Pacific Ocean where they gather together (laughs) in communities. So, when when you have a situation where you have certain, let's just say, laws of nature and certain objects which are under those laws of nature, things must act in a certain way. Therefore, you can study them, you can control them, you can perform controlled experiments, you can prove this or prove that. But when you come, and the reason sociology and psychology aren't and ever will be hard sciences is because people have free will. And that's why some some form of psychology, academically, retreat to like physiology and neurology because they're just they want so much to be a hard science you know they have a complex about that but in any case if you take and if you take God the let's say the definition we're working with here of God we're talking about an absolutely free entity someone, someone that an entity a conscious being that has absolute freedom and so therefore how would the behavior of God be deterministic in the sense that because if God does not have to behave in a certain way, then, then how do you prove it? Like, in other words, let's say God creates a world. And, and let's say He creates the world according to his or her simply artistic sense. Freely creates. When you freely create someone, how can someone take that creation and deterministically trace it back to you? So, so you have this dichotomy between necessity and freedom. Things which are necessary are not free. Things which are free are not necessary. So if you do something freely, you didn't have to do it. And so if God is an absolutely free entity who acts freely, then God does not act necessarily and therefore you can't identify a necessary causal chain, trace it back, so that if God created the world, you should be able to look at the world and prove that exactly what God is. Did you follow? And also, it's... um, I mean, who wants to be proved? It's like... I mean, I mean what if for example let, let, let's say you have a great life you have lots of friends you're happy and there's someone that just doesn't like you for some bad reason they don't like you and so I come to you and say prove to that person how good you are let's, you know, it's like do you really want to do that let's say you don't need that person for anything that person is not like the district attorney or your boss, or someone you're attached to—it's just like the person you don't need that person anyway. And I say, prove to that person. Let's go prove to that person. So, so according to this view, it's the nature of God that God uh, proves, God reciprocates, and we all reciprocate. So that if you if you were interested in God. Then that will be reciprocated. But the idea that of an entity that should be proved to someone else, there's something very pretentious. If I let's say I walk into the physics department at the University of Florida and I and I say to the physicists, You've got this theory, whatever, prove it to me. I don't believe it. Do you know physics? No. Well, I mean I took it in high school, but I was <laughs> mostly, you know, talking to my friends. So in other words, when When you say, prove something to me, you are claiming to be expert in that field. You are proved, right? That's why scholars publish things in referee journals, because ordinary people aren't qualified to evaluate their claims. So are you, when you say, prove something to me, whenever a person says, prove this to me, you are claiming to be expert in this. So if you say prove God to me, what you are saying is I am qualified, I am ready, I have sufficient consciousness, I have, you know, I won't say this cosmic consciousness where if there's a God, I'm the guy that can evaluate it. You know, I can edit the referee journal on God. And is that the case? Is that really who you are? So the claim... So whenever someone says, prove it to me, that they are really making all kinds of claims about themselves. And the question is, are they ready for that? So again, proving to yourself, proving to others. There are a million things I could say, but uh, maybe we'll just stop here for now. Any questions? If not, yeah, ask at your own risk because you may set me off again. Yes? (laughs) You said without our self-evident. Can
1: I just explain that
3: Yes, like the sun, for example. In the darkness, if you want to prove like, let's say there's a dark room and you say, is my hat really in that room? Then you have to bring some light. But the sun, how can you bring light to the sun? They say you can't hold a candle to the sun. If the sun is in the sky, there's no other light you can bring to the sun to demonstrate the sun. The sun reveals itself. And all kinds of sages have used the sun. Plato talks about the sun and... Krishna talks about the sun and so on. So, something reveals itself. For example, empirical scientists would claim that the existence of a real physical world outside of our minds proves itself to us by the way it presents itself to consciousness. So again, that point, which I I thought was really a good point, I I, I don't take credit for the point, it just kind of fills a gift, but The idea that everyone is claiming to be able to say what is real and unreal. And so if you just say that I've done the work in this particular field, namely the God field, and uh, yeah, that's real. God is real. That's That's not a new kind of claim. It's not a different kind of claim. It's the same claim of being able to see what's real and not real, extended to another entity which you have focused on. So this dichotomy between faith and, and, and reason or science is, from the philosophical point of view, is, 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 is unbelievably naive. It's unbelievably naive. Because the fact is that everyone believes something. Krishna makes this point in the Bhagavad Gita, that, that everyone is caused to faith. You may believe there's a real world out there outside your mind. You may not believe that. You may believe there's a God. You may believe that there's not God. You may believe you don't know. But that's also faith. Agnosticism is faith because you believe you don't know. And someone can test your faith by saying, do you really believe you don't know? So theism, agnosticism, atheism, they're just different kinds of faith. The idea that there's kind of like the, you know, sort of intellectually buff agnostic type (laughs) who, you know, doesn't traffic in faith. The the naivete of that view is is staggering that someone could be that naïve. As to as think that. So faith is a constant. The variable is the object of your faith.
0: Yes, ma'am. I was wondering, I, I hope I not off the wall question, but in every tradition, is there a concept of avidus? Because I believe that, I that avidus would fit into that. Sort of,
3: of advanced souls who appear to be very eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they seem to be all over the place. <laughs> you know, the idea that someone has become so conscious that they just can't relate to this world and, and they're responding in their behavior to their own experience of a higher reality. And therefore, that behavior appears to be strange to people who are not perceiving that reality. So, and, and then, of course, a lot of people, in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna says, even if you are enlightened, you know, try to behave sort of normally so you don't. Make a a scene everywhere you go. (laughs) Yes. Um. Maybe you could say a few words about that and explain what you mean by that, Um, what they mean by that.
4: I'm I'm
3: sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Out and suspicious of so-called great ideas that can't be simply explained. And, and I tend to think that, because when you get very technical, you, you can show anything. If you, if you look at all the great issues let's say, the history of philosophy, you can find technical arguments on all sides. That, and so I, I think when, when your only way of demonstrating something is very technical convoluted, I think, it's probably not true. And, and so... Uh, as far as deconstruction, that's a very interesting topic. You raise very interesting points. I won't be, but, but it, of, because you you seem to be speaking of Western
4: European rationalism as as a as a sort of trap,
3: and well, only in that sense. Look at people who have tried to escape the trap. Well, only only in the sense of uh, when it becomes imperialistic. In other words, let's say you live in a house and. Someone else lives in their house, in your neighbors. So you now, if you decide that you want both houses, you're going to throw the person out of their own house, then it's a problem. So in the same way, there, there's very, there's very interesting statement in the Bhagavad Gita, I think, at the end of chapter two, which really I think addresses what you're saying, where Krishna says even budhe parang that intelligence. I'll try to keep the sort of the very literal thing about Krishna intelligence should intellect using the word intellect now as, as the action of intelligence that intelligence should intellect what is beyond itself that's what Krishna says literally so reason for example, I knew that there was a lecture tonight at 7.30 and I thought I should arrive on time and not you know, cause people trouble and so I calculated You know, I analyzed, okay, how far away am I from that building, how am I going to get there and everything. So we're, we're all using intelligence constantly. Intelligence is a God-given facility. In fact, Krishna claims in the Bhagavad Gita that intelligence is his energy. That, 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 that It's one of the things he creates in the world is intelligence. So intelligence is not bad. It's, it's another divine energy, according to the Bhagavad Gita. The problem is, sort of elephantitis of the intelligence, I mean the problem is when we take this God-given faculty and use it imperialistically to subjugate other faculties, even in areas where other faculties have a more appropriate and legitimate function to perform. And so everything is you know, good in its own place in, in its, So the right, maybe try to uh, pay more attention to the salary. to the what? I think, by analogy, it would be as if you were trying to pay more attention to the sound of your food than the taste of your food. That's an interesting
4: idea. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, yeah. No, but
3: it's an interesting point. Um, Yeah, intelligence uh, is... is, In in fact, in the the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Purana, uh, there's a statement in the third canto that... uh, that the first symptom of intelligence, the Sanskrit word "buddhi," the first symptom of intelligence is doubt, samshaya. So if, let's say, I'm born in the world and I don't doubt anything, I would never pursue a higher understanding of anything. In a sense, it's doubting lower states of reality which leads us to pursue higher states. It's doubt, let's say, doubting... Uh, certain states of consciousness in which people are biased against certain things. Or people, let's say, in ignorant ways reject other people. And so doubt is a sign of intelligence. We doubt something and then we try to find something higher. But the doubt has to be reasonable. The doubt has to be reasonable. And our society is actually biased in favor of skepticism. So that in an academic environment, I always make this point, in an academic environment, so-called, you know, wannabe intellectual environment, doubting, especially doubting spiritual things, is intellectually respectable even without good reasons. Whereas believing spiritual things is not entirely respectable even with reasons. And so there is this phobia about blind faith, but there's no phobia about blind doubt and as we know to believe what is not true or doubt what is true can be equally pernicious if I don't believe what is true that can be a huge problem so we have the common term blind faith but not blind doubt and that simply simply demonstrates the tilt of our culture we live in an age in which skepticism among "Quote unquote intellectuals. Skepticism is a privileged position. It's like a subsidized position. It's, it's you know it's kind of like you understand the point. So reason and even doubting can all be valuable gifts, but they have to be used appropriately. A knife in the hands of a surgeon can save lives. A knife in the hand of a you know a criminal can take lives." So that, that tendency to cut things in the hands of an irresponsible person, a person who's sort of in a knee-jerk way, uh, just sort of almost like compulsively doubts everything because it's considered to be intellectual or sexy or, or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, so there, there's a tremendous amount of irrational doubting going on precisely because... In so-called intellectual circles, there is no rigor which is imposed upon doubting, only upon believing, in relation to spiritual things.
1: Uh, can I add something to that? By the way, I'm buying yes. a, a copy of uh, Derrida and Indian Philosophy, Oh. Um, which is uh, really well, can I... It's actually it's going to it's going to take uh, Derrida as your, your starting point. And it's going to assume you know Derrida's uh, uh, philosophical uh, teachings, and then kind of add on. The, Indian philosophical uh, aspects to it. So if you are not versed in Derrida, but you are versed in Indian philosophy, probably not the first book you want to pick up. You probably want to know Derrida first. But in respect to your question, uh, uh, the author Harold Bloom actually says, yeah, there is a lot of overlap uh, between Derrida's perspective and specific aspects of Indian philosophy. What does he mean then by saying
3: that A is the people
1: that part I did not even. Know. <laughs> I'm not
3: real, real strongly first in the area. Um is it a relativism? It is, is it saying there, there is no objective meaning? No, no, he's not saying.
1: Well, he's 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 much more
3: relativist than you know, kind of like
1: Western Western uh, uh, analytic philosophical perspectives for sure. sure. Um, but it's not complete relativism. Hard pressed to find. Yeah, I gotta be more there like it. Hard relativism, one thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, actually, he finds most of the, the overlap though lies within uh, Buddhist philosophical, uh, Buddhist phenomenology, for example, Uh today a kind of classical Vedic philosophy. But Buddhist phenomenology has its roots in the Vedic philosophical perspectives too. So, you thank might you for that. Out. Yeah, thank you. Okay,
3: sorry. No, I'm no, no, that's, that's not, not that. Right. <laughs> So, there's no other questions. maybe we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here a little bit. Thank you all very much.